Good morning, everyone. It's not going to happen this morning. I'm executive pastor here, and um, Ben, our lead pastor, has been away for how long now? Almost two months. He's back on the 1st of September. And when he comes back, it looks like there's still going to be a church here. And that we haven't burned the building down and everyone hasn't left and gone somewhere else. Um, glory to God. Uh, we, we're doing something different this morning. How many of you have a physical Bible with you when you come? How many of you would like a physical Bible with you when you were here but just don't want to have to carry it? Any of those? Surely there's some. There's a few, all right. So at the back... From now on, every Sunday, every Sunday we, we have these Bibles, English Standard Version. They are large print. You can read it from about this distance. Um, if you would like one of those, why don't you just raise your hand? The idea is that when you come, everybody, if you could just look out fr from the back, please, whoever is giving out the Bibles, thank you um, for those folks. Just keep your hands raised. I've got to go and give this one to you. There are some more at the back. Just keep your hands raised. They're coming down the aisles um, because we, we're going to be, uh, imagine it, we're going to be looking at our Bibles this morning, if that's okay. Um, and so if you have a physical one with you, get that thing ready. If you do not have a physical Bible, get the app open and turn the screen close thing off. Um, I'm not going to throw candy out this morning, um, but I'm still going to ask you to help me with something. There's a story in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 17, when Jesus goes up a mountain with some of his disciples. Now, Jesus takes how many disciples up the mountain with him? Three. And which disciples does he take up the mountain with him? Peter, James, and John. And then what happens when he goes up the mountain, it seems as if the scripture says that what happens is that Jesus' face begins to shine like the sun. Imagine what that's like. You're with someone that you've walked with for a number of years, and he takes you on this mountain trip. And when he's up the mountain, his face begins to shine like the sun, and his clothes begin to become white. And then the next thing that happens is you see Moses appear, and Elijah appear, and Jesus in conversation with Moses and Elijah and his disciples do what we'd probably do. They sort of blurt out something that this is great. This is so great. This is so cool. Why don't we stay here forever and ever? And in fact, why don't we just build tabernacles? Let's build one for Moses. Let's build one for Elijah. Let's build one for you, Jesus. Let's build one for ourselves. And let's all stay here forever and ever because on the mountain with Jesus is the place that we're going to remain for the rest of our lives. But do we always stay at the top of the mountain when God ever takes us there? No, we don't. But it's something that we have a tendency to want to do in all Christianity is anytime we have a God experience that's exceptional, we want to remain there and we want to stay there. But what happens instead is that this cloud then overshadows Jesus and a voice speaks from the cloud and it says, this is my son, my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, hear him. If you think about what's going on in the mountain, Jesus is speaking with Moses and Elijah. Now, when we think of who Moses might represent, what does Moses maybe represent? The law. So if Moses maybe represents the law and Elijah maybe represents the prophets, the interesting thing is that God, out of the cloud, says that even though you have the law, even though you have the prophets, this is my beloved son, hear him. 
Something significant happens on the mountain when Jesus, when, when Jesus is, is defined as being more significant than the whole of the law, more significant than all of the prophets. And God says that even though you have those two things above the law, above the prophets, because of the law, because of the prophets, hear him. Now, God had been speaking for generations, hadn't he? This isn't the first time God had spoken. And if you open your Bibles, please, to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Let me just see a quick show of hands when you get to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Um, let me see a show of two hands if it's Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, using one of the new Bibles. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, describes how God had been speaking for many generations by the prophets. Most translations, English Standard Version, King James Version, New King James Version, New International Version, will say that God who at various times and in various ways, who has that? Various times, various ways, various times, many ways. Who has the word, the phrase, various ways and many portions? Anyone have the word portions there? One person. So, Hardy, you must be reading from the New American Standard Version of the Bible. You are indeed. You see, the New American Standard Version of the Bible is, is a, a fairly literal, a very accurate translation. And in this instance, it's actually more accurate than all the rest of them. Because if you looked at the word um, that, is, that is a Greek word there, which is polymeros, meros actually means portions. And so it's not saying that God in various times and various ways spoke. It's saying God in various times and in various portions spoke. Various chunks, various pieces. And if you think about what this is saying, is that it's telling us that through the history of of, of, of Israel through the entire Old Testament. God spoke in various ways, various times, but he spoke in various portions. Now, is a portion the entire meal? It isn't. How many of you are, are chefs here? How many of you like to cook? And how many of you, when you deliver a meal, have a, have a bit of something and a bit of something else and a bit of something else? Well, this is, this is what I want you to understand, that the scripture in Hebrews 1.1 is saying that God in various times spoke in various portions, in pieces, in chunks, in separate things that together make an entire picture. And so when we're looking at the Old Testament, what we recognize is that the Old Testament, when you look at it, there are pieces, there are portions that together make up the picture of salvation that is the New Testament. And it's a picture that unfortunately is easy to miss if you're looking at it in the wrong way and if you don't understand how the portions all come together and unless wisdom brings it all together, right? And so it's very interesting that in the, in the New Testament, Jesus brings the entire Old Testament together in one sermon that he delivers on a seven-mile journey. Now, Ali referenced this last time. After the crucifixion, after the resurrection in Luke chapter 24, maybe just turn to Luke chapter 24, Jesus comes alongside some men who are on a seven-mile trip from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Now, if we were walking for seven miles, how long do you think that would take us? Roughly. Two hours? Maybe. Two hours, that's going some, right? That's assuming that this is flat terrain. That's assuming that it's not, it's not elevated. That's assuming that, that we're not actually interested in what the person next to us is saying and we're walking like this uh, rather than we're trying to get away from him, right? So it could have been an all-day journey. So imagine that it's an all-day journey, that it's a seven-mile journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And there's these couple guys, a couple disciples, Luke 24 tells us, are on this journey 
And, and they're, a little, they're a little troubled because, because they're having conversations about what had just happened in Jerusalem. And what had just happened in Jerusalem, Jesus had been crucified. The one that they'd expected was going to be the king of Israel that was going to restore the kingdom to Israel had been crucified. And they'd heard some stories about his resurrection, but they don't know where his body is. And it's the women that went to the tomb. And the women were telling these crazy stories about seeing angels and things and, and, and someone speaking to them. And they can't make it all out. And Jesus, it says, comes alongside this man. These two men, imagine that. These two men are talking about Jesus and Jesus comes alongside them. And the scripture says that their eyes are restrained. Their eyes are restrained, and so they're walking, and they're saying, man, some terrible things happened in Jerusalem. And he says, really? Like what? And they say to him, are you, are you the only one who didn't understand what happened in Jerusalem? Are you the only one who doesn't understand the terrible things that happened to the, the one who was to be the king of Israel because their eyes are restrained, and they don't know that Jesus is right alongside them? And in Luke 24, verse 25, he says to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets had spoken. All of the prophets had spoken in many portions. Everybody just say the word portions. You probably say it a little different than me. A little bit more emphasis on the R, is it portions? <laughs> is that a little better? Portions. Say it like you're in London. Thank you. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And this is the amazing thing, Luke 24, verse 27. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That's a seven-mile journey with Jesus. When Jesus maybe takes them back to the book of Genesis, he says, let me show you. And he's not carrying a Bible because he's got us all internalized. This is in Genesis, it says this about me. And in Exodus, it says this about me. And in Leviticus, that book that you skip through because you think it's nothing to do with anything. This is what it says about me. And in Deuteronomy, and in Samuel, and in Chronicles, and in Kings. And then maybe he comes to the prophets. And prophet by prophet, maybe Jesus says, here's a portion of something about me that if I tell you how it comes together with wisdom, you'll get a picture, a sense of the thing that you are unable to see because your eyes are focused on a particular understanding of God. Your eyes are thinking about something specific, and instead I want you to open the eyes of your understanding through seeing these portions, these sections, these bits, these pieces scattered throughout the Old Testament. And when they all come together, you're going to see something interesting. And so we're in the middle, uh, actually coming towards the end. This is the second from last week where we're walking through the book of the 12, which are the 12 minor prophets. Minor not because they said something that's unimportant, but minor because they didn't say very much that is recorded. And today, we're in the book of Micah. And so I wonder what Jesus may have said to them on that seven-mile, all-day journey about the book of Micah. Anything? How many of you have read the book of Micah? How many of you can see a picture of salvation in the book of Micah? Isn't that interesting? Not another hand went up. So that's what we're going to try and do today. So I wonder if Jesus had just used the book of Micah, how well he would have done, describing his father's kingdom purposes, describing himself, describing what the kingdom of heaven itself is like from the book of Micah. You see, they probably would have known the historical context of Micah, so he might not have had to tell them that. But just in case we don't know it, let's look at that. Firstly, everybody, find Micah in your Bibles. And you can use the index. You can use the 
thing on your phone that tells you how to do it. Or you could go to the end of Daniel, which everyone knows how to find Daniel, and you go to the beginning of the New Testament, and you'll get a chunk that's about this size in a Bible, and Micah's about halfway in that, because it's the sixth of the 12 books. Israel is a divided kingdom at the time that Micah is known, so maybe the guys that Jesus is walking with knew that, so maybe he didn't have to tell them that. He didn't have to tell them that there's a southern kingdom and the northern kingdom and that Micah is writing to the southern kingdom. He might not have had to tell them that Micah is one of four prophets, Isaiah, Nahum, and Zephaniah, the other three, who are focused on the southern kingdom. But in the beginning of Micah, chapter 1, verse 1, it says this, the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth, In the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, who are kings of Judah. And maybe you can do this. Maybe you can keep one finger in Micah, and you can go to the beginning of Isaiah. And when you go there, what do you see? The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of. And you see the same kings, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah there. Do you see that? So this tells us that uh, Isaiah and, and, and Micah are contemporaries. And sometimes when you go between the two books, you'll see passages that are almost exactly the same. And they may have known, if you know your history of Israel, that King Jotham was one of the kings that did what was right in the sight of God. You know how the kings were always stacked up. This one did what was right. Well, Jotham did what was right. Ahaz did not do what was right. Hezekiah did what was right. And I wonder whether they also knew... That Micah means who is like God. You think that fascinating? That a prophet writes and his name is actually who is like God. And so I wonder sometimes when we think about the name of the actual prophet, and you can actually do this with the names of every one of the 12 minor prophets, you can get a sense of what God is doing in the period from the end of the major prophets up to the beginning of the New Testament. There's this gap in which something's going on, and that's what we're going to talk about today just a little bit. So maybe Jesus mentioned to them from Micah chapter 1. What does it say in verse 2? Hear all you peoples, listen, O earth, and all that is in it. Let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. What's that telling us about salvation? Is that telling us that God is about to speak directly from heaven in a way that you can hear it? You see, that's an unusual thing because in the Old Testament, when had God ever spoken directly from heaven? Sinai? What did it sound like when God spoke from heaven on Sinai? Thunder. And the people couldn't understand what God was saying. But Micah is prophesying and saying, Hear all you peoples, listen, O earth, let God be a witness against you from heaven, the Lord from his temple. Are we talking about a God who is about to speak directly to the earth somehow? Is that a portion of something that if we store it, we begin to get a sense of what's about to happen in the New Testament? Remember, in the New Testament, they don't have the New Testament. They just have the Old Testament. And so the reason that they missed Jesus was because they missed these kind of things. They missed the portions. They missed the bits that God had just laid out in the whole Old Testament. That when you take them together in aggregate, you get a clear sense of who Jesus is. Not only a clear sense of who Jesus is, of what Jesus came to do. And that suffering was going to precede him coming to his glory. And so the guys on the road to Emmaus 
Think that God wasn't meant to suffer. God in Christ wasn't meant to suffer. And Jesus is showing them through the Old Testament that this is exactly how it was meant to be. Verse 3 of chapter 1, For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. He will come down. God's going to come down in the Old Testament. The prophet Micah is telling us that God's going to come down and tread on the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under him. The valleys will split like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. Jesus is spoken of as being the one who will baptize with fire, who is filled with living water. If we're paying attention, do you see how these portions are laden throughout the entire Old Testament? But we're just in the book of Micah. Spin over to chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and peoples shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, come and let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. When the scripture speaks about peoples and nations, it's speaking about who? Is it speaking about the Hebrews? Or is it speaking about the entirety of the earth? If you want to find God telling us that the gospel is for Gentiles, how many Gentiles in the room? The gospel's for us. Is that in the Old Testament? Of course it is. So how do you miss that in the New Testament? How does the Jewish nation consider that the gospel was just for them because you miss the portions? You miss seeing the pieces that are spread throughout the entire Old Testament. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk with his, in his paths. God's invitation in Christ Jesus is not only to the Gentiles, but it's about a direct relationship with him. Are we really doing this all on the basis of the book of Micah? Chapter 4, verse 3, he shall judge between many nations. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore, which is almost a direct mirror of Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 to 4. Is that prophesying Jesus' second coming? Has war ended today? Are we still at war? Will there continue to be war until Jesus comes? But is this speaking of his calling at his second coming to judge the nations, the perfection of his kingdom, a kingdom in which everyone lays arms down and the lion lies down with the lamb. Think about that. In the kingdom of heaven, the lion and the lamb next to each other, and the lamb isn't afraid for its life. And the lamb can close its eyes and sleep and isn't afraid of the lion destroying her or him. A new heaven, a new earth, no more war, no more sickness, no more suffering, no more tears in the book of Micah. Chapter 6, he has shown you, chapter 6, verse 8, he has shown you, a man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do, do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. Chapter 7, I will look to the Lord. Chapter 7, verse 7, I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Do not rejoice over me, my enemy. When I fall, I will arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. Is that speaking, perhaps, of resurrection? Is that speaking of resurrection power in the middle of the book of Micah? Is Jesus himself, when he wonders what it's going to be like in the grave, reading Micah and saying, God, my enemy, don't rejoice over me when I fall, because when I sit in darkness, I will, be, I will arise and the Lord will be a light to me. How does Jesus understand his calling? How does Jesus understand his ministry from the Old Testament? 
from doing the work, from understanding that there are portions scattered to it. Who, verse 18 of chapter 7. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and subdue our iniquities. You will cast our sins where? Into the depths of the sea in the book of Micah. His work of grace, his fullness of grace, fullness of mercy for sinners in the book of Micah. I found it astonishing when I started to pay attention to this book that I would easily just overlook and pay no attention to, that if you really look, if you're really looking for portions of the salvation message, portions, bits, pieces that we can piece together and understanding about the kingdom of heaven if we didn't have an entire New Testament, it's there. So how do we miss it so easily? And the verse I want, I, the verse I want to focus on is chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are, next word is little. Bethlehem, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forths are from old, from everlasting. And so I want to spend a little bit of time talking to you this morning about little Bethlehem. Little Bethlehem. The only New Testament reference to the book of Micah is actually this. There's nothing else in the entire New Testament where there's a reference to Micah other than this passage here. And it happens in Matthew 2, verses 1 through to 16. And you know the story. Jesus is born where? In Bethlehem. And it says that wise men come from the east following a star. And where does the star stop? Interestingly, the star doesn't stop over Bethlehem. The star stops over Jerusalem. It's weird. The star is confused. <laughs> the star stops over Jerusalem, and, and, the, and the wise men go into Herod, and they're trying to work out where this king is to be born. And Herod, it says in, in Matthew chapter 2, summons the chief priests and the scribes, and they look at, the, uh, they look at the, the, the books, and they work out that it says, ah, Micah, it says there that he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And so the wise men, because they did the work and they found this little portion, end up in the right place. One reference in the whole of the Old Testament to where Jesus is going to be born. If they'd missed that portion, that piece of, 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 of the salvation message in the Old Testament, they, they don't find their way to, to, to Bethlehem. They make it all the way from the east, however far it was in the east they come, and they stop in Jerusalem. Because it seems as if the whole of creation is expecting Jesus to be born where? In Jerusalem. Expecting Jesus to be born in Jerusalem. And this is telling us something about us, isn't it? It's telling us something that we have expectations and we have ways of thinking, and we're set in those ways. And if we don't understand when God does something a little different and flips the script, and God does something that is intended to get our attention, when God does something with something that seems small and seems insignificant and is almost missed and is unnoticeable unless we're paying a lot of attention, we'll miss the entire thing that God does. And the wise men almost miss it. They come all the way from the east. The star stops in Jerusalem. They stop in Jerusalem but they have to search the scriptures. And when they search the scriptures, they find that the scriptures in Micah say that he's going to be born in Bethlehem. So they set off on a journey to Bethlehem. And of course, when they find Jesus there, they don't come back because they don't tell Herod because they know Herod just wants to know where the king is going to be born. Why? So he can kill him. 
So they go another way, but Herod still, it tells us in Matthew 2, has this terrible decree where he kills all the young boys under the age of two in Bethlehem because he's certain that if he does that, he's going to find the one that is going to be king of Israel and presumably just usurp him, be in his place. Little Bethlehem. Little Bethlehem. Why? Why is Jesus born in Bethlehem? Why is he not born in Jerusalem? Why? What's so important about Bethlehem? Think about it for a minute. Nothing. <laughs> not a lot. The scripture tells us that uh, it's not the capital city. What was the capital city? Jerusalem. It's about five miles southwest of Jerusalem. Jacob's wife, Rachel, was born there. You may think that's small and insignificant, but go read the story in Genesis 37 and 48, how Rachel's, Rachel's wife, sorry, is buried there. Is that significant? That Rachel, the one who longs for a child and has the children last and has to look at Leah having children and has two children and has the last child, Benjamin, and dies while Benjamin's born is buried on the way to Bethlehem. Maybe you think that's significant. Maybe you think it's a portion that just doesn't matter. Maybe when you look at it and you pay attention to it, God reveals something to you about him. It's David's family home. Did you know that? Do you know that Bethlehem is where David was born? Bethlehem is where the prophet Samuel comes to, to anoint David. But what happens in that anointing? It's another overlooking of the significant, right? Because what happens is Samuel comes in and Samuel sees the tall one and the good-looking one and the handsome one, and Samuel says, it's him. And God says, no, it's not. Samuel says, it's him, the next tallest one, the next best-looking one. And so they're getting uglier and uglier and shorter and shorter down the line, right? And eventually they get to a point that they're like, if you've got any more sons? And Jesse's like, oh, yeah, but there's, there's the one that we didn't even bother to invite to the anointing of the king because there's no way it could be him, but it is him. It is him, are you seeing something about our God as we begin to walk through this? Something about how God does things that get our attention, something significant, something significant about little Bethlehem. And there's a story in 1 Chronicles 11 and 2 Samuel 23 about David's mighty men. Who's ever heard of David's mighty men? There's a bunch of crazy guys who hang with David. And this is after King Saul's death. And David is, is, is in Jerusalem with all of these mighty men. And these men are so wild and crazy that anything David wants, they do. And if there's a piece of land that's a, a square foot wide, and, and this is God's land, they will stand and defend this piece of land with their lives because it's God's land. And they'll do anything for David. And so at some point, whether he knows it or not, David just says, oh, how I long for a drink from the well of Bethlehem. And, and the guys go, you hear that? And so what do they do? Now, Bethlehem is under the control of the Philistines at the time, but that doesn't matter to them. What do they do? They break through the Philistine lines. They go to the well in Bethlehem that David longs for a drink from, and they draw water from the well, and they bust back through the Philistine lines, and they bring it to David, and they give it to David, and David probably is like, oh, Lord, they heard. Did I say that out loud? <laughs> right? These guys are crazy, right? But there's something about Bethlehem that makes David thirsty, there's something about Bethlehem that's significant. Something about Bethlehem that's significant. Little Bethlehem, significant in the course of Israel's hierarchy in history? No. Little Bethlehem, obscure? Yes, in a worldly sense. Little Bethlehem, overlooked? Yes. Even the star almost missed it. 
If you don't believe me, read Matthew 2, and you'll see that the star stops in Jerusalem, and it's only after they search the scriptures, and they find out it's Bethlehem, and they go on the journey again, that the star then moves with them and stops over the Bethlehem. So what am I trying to tell you today? I'm trying to tell you that sometimes God does something unusual. Sometimes God does something that is a little unfamiliar. Sometimes God does something that is a little difficult for us to get our minds around. Sometimes God does something new, and the reason he does it is to force us to pay attention. And if we miss it, it's easy to miss it, because we don't tend to pay attention to little details. How many of you would spend the rest of the week meditating on why Jacob's wife, Rachel, was buried on the way to Bethlehem so that God might reveal something to you about why that might have been written down. We wouldn't bother with that. But one prophet at a time, one portion at a time, through the entirety of the 12, the book of the 12, God is doing something that is setting up the way and is painting a picture of who is to come, of Jesus. One portion at a time, one prophet at a time. Think what God is doing. He's redefining significance. I think what significance was to the Jews at this point. Significance meant a land. Significance meant a temple. Significance meant the law written on tablets of stone, an external law. Significance meant a uh, human kings, a line of human kings. Significance meant that they had a professional priesthood. Where's the professional priesthood now? Where's the line of kings? Where's the land? Where's the temple? Where's the law written on tablets of stone? If you think about the message of Jeremiah, it was to tear down, to destroy, and to build up. So I want you to understand that through the entirety of the minor prophets, what God is doing, he's destroying an old thing an old construct, and he's showing you what is about to come. And we take it for granted because we're the people that live in the New Testament. But imagine what it would have been like to have not had the New Testament, and you're walking with a man. Someone's just called him the Lamb of God. Or you're walking with a man, and he's taking you up to a mountain, and he starts to shine a little bit. Or you're walking with a man and you're on a, on a boat with him and the storm is, is, is raging and he's asleep and you're mad with him. And you tell him, that, are, you, are you not worried about us perishing? And he gets up and he speaks a word to the storm and the storm stops. Or you're on the way to Emmaus and Jesus is walking next to you and you don't know that it's him. In 2022, people, this is what we have to pay attention to, the little things, the little portions no more professional priesthood, no more for the Jews only, no more human kings, no more law on tablet of stones, no more land, no more temple. God destroys all of those things and reframes it how in the person of Jesus Christ. And the person of Jesus Christ is evident in every one of these little pieces scattered through the whole of the Old Testament, including in the book of Micah. And it comes a point in John chapter 4 when Jesus is meeting a woman by a well and the woman says to him that you people say we should worship here and we say you should worship there and you should do it this way, we should do it that way. And he says it's none of those things. The time is now here when true worshipers will worship how? In spirit 
and in truth. And the Father is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. So this is the amazing thing. God is constructing a salvation that is easy to miss. A salvation that isn't obvious. It's not on the billboards. It's not advertised loud and, and, and in big print. It's easy to miss. And the reason that Jesus is born in Bethlehem is God's trying to wake us up to the fact that what he says is significant is that what we think is significant may not actually be significant. It's not about Jerusalem. It's about this obscure little backward place that the star almost forgot about. It's about something different. And when God defines it as significant, we should pay attention. And this is the beautiful thing. What God defines as significant, the way he defines as significant, what he says matters, the world cannot understand it. The world can't understand it. What God says sufficient is sufficient. What he says is enough. What matters most to him, who matters most to him, the world cannot understand it. And you see how you get a picture of that from focusing on little Bethlehem. Little Bethlehem. Little Bethlehem. Small, insignificant, obscure, easy to miss, out of the way. The star missed it. The wise men almost missed it. Doesn't make any sense in the context of the Old Testament, but God says there, my son's going to be born. And this is the essence of the whole gospel, isn't it? Blessed are the rich. Blessed are the famous. Blessed are the most significant ones in the world's eyes. Blessed are the ones who have the most followers. Blessed are the ones who everyone knows your name. Blessed are the ones who, who know. It's not that, is it? Blessed are those who are like little Bethlehem. Small insignificant, weak, nothing, overlooked, the poor in spirit, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. 1 Corinthians 1 tells us that God chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the weak things, the base things, the despised things, the things that seem as if they're nothing, to shame those things that think they are. So it says that not many rich find their way to the kingdom. Not many famous find their way to the kingdom. Not many significant find their way to the kingdom. Not many who are anything find their way to the kingdom. Praise God for the word M, the letter M, because it doesn't say not any, but not many, but some do. But when God says to you that the base and the despised and the worthless and the weak and the meek and the useless rush to the kingdom, we should rejoice. Because isn't that who we are? Isn't that who we are? Aren't we little Bethlehem? Doesn't Bethlehem resound in us and tell us something about the, this is who our God is? Why? So no flesh can glory in his presence. And so the only way we can relate to God then is how? By faith. Because if it's about the big thing, if it's about the big place, if it's about the significant, if it's about some work that we can do, then there is no opportunity for faith. Faith, Hebrews 11, 1, 2 says, is the substance of things hopeful, the evidence of things not seen. And so here's the question I'm going to ask you today. What has God told you is significant that you think isn't? So something God has said to you is significant that you are still calling 
insignificant. Is there something that God has told you is enough that you think is not enough? Is there a thing God has told you to do that you think, if I did it, wouldn't make any difference? Is there a place God has told you to go that you think, why would I go there? Because if I went there, nothing good would come of that. Is there a way that God has told you to do something that you think you have a better way to do? Surely something there resounds with every one of us. Because we're not people who believe in little Bethlehem. It's so much easier if God tells us to do something big and spectacular and world-changing. We're like, that's it, right? He's called me to this big thing, not that little, small, obscure thing. I, I taught this at Snellville, and, 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 and a gentleman came up, and he said he'd been a pastor for 35 years of churches, never more than a few. And he said he'd, 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 he'd argued with God for years that he'd been called to pastor big churches, Right? But he felt a release and a peace when he heard what I was talking about because he had a sense that God was saying to him that I said it mattered. And I told you to do it, and that's it. And I don't know how many of you are scholars of church history, but when you look through church history, you'll see men and women who did seemingly insignificant things. A man called Luther names, nails 95 theses to the door of a church that starts the Protestant Reformation. He may have thought, well, I'm just mad at the Catholic Church. And what, what, what good would come of me nailing anything to the door? They're just going to pull them off and tear them down and nothing's going to come of it. But it changes history. How do you not know that the small, insignificant thing that is in your heart wasn't put there by God? And you're upset at God because it's not big enough. It's not going to make you famous enough. It's not going to make you wealthy or rich. It's just a little, small, insignificant thing. Remember little Bethlehem. Remember little Bethlehem, because Jerusalem, if it had a voice, may have protested. We want Jesus to be born here, and Bethlehem's like, mm, okay, I'm just nothing. There's a parable in the New Testament. Jesus tells it in Matthew 13, 31 to 32. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field which indeed is the least of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. I don't know how many of you may still carry the little packets with little seeds in them. Anyone still got one from Christmas? Hang on to that. It was shocking in Snellville. Their executive pastor, Carlos, had, he hadn't been here in December when we did that, but clearly someone had stolen my idea. Because um, he had a little packet with a little seed in it from four years ago or something that it reminded him of. The small, seemingly insignificant, pointless thing in the eyes of the world might be the most significant thing in the eyes of God. What God tells you is significant is good. What God tells you matters is enough. What God tells you to go, go there. When God tells you to do it a way that he says to do it, do it that way. In faith. Walk around the walls of this closed city for seven days in a row. And on the last day, do it seven times and blow a trumpet and then the walls are going to fall down. You're like, that's ridiculous. I've studied history. 
and know what walls are built of. Build an ark in the middle of nowhere for something called rain that you've never heard of. Never been any rain on the earth at the time that Noah builds the ark. You might be just a little guy who has a few loaves and fishes. And there's 5,000, 10,000 people on the hillside. And you're like, what good would these do? I just got a couple of fish and some loaves. I may as well, clearly they're just meant for me and my buddies. So we're just going to go over in the corner behind that bush and we're going to eat. And we're going to watch everyone else starve. But there's this man who you see and somehow you have a sense that if I take what I have to him, it might make a difference. You might not even think it makes a difference, but you take it to him anyway and you say, I present to you all I have and it's not very much and it's insignificant and the world thinks it's nothing and it's not going to change anything and it can't feed these people, but it feeds the people. Because in the hands of the master, our weakness, our insignificance, our little Bethlehem, our nothing, our I can't do it, our I don't want to do it, our if I do it, it's not going to change anything, matters. matters so let me ask you again where has God said to go that you said I won't because if I go it won't change what has God told you to change in your life stop this do this you're like no this is working and he's saying no this is what I'm calling you to these people that he's told you to go meet and talk to the way he's told you to do it the thing he's told you to do in faith trust him Trust his word. Trust his promises. Little Bethlehem. I never want you to forget the concept of little Bethlehem. Every time you think about little Bethlehem, I want you to remember this. What God says is significant is. Yeah? What God says is significant is. Yeah? 